Step right up, folks, and see little Egypt do a famous dance of the pyramids. She walks, she talks, she crawls on her belly like a reptile. Just one thin dime, one-tenth of a dollar. Step right up, folks. I went and bought myself a ticket, and I sat down in the very first row. They pulled the curtain up, and when they turned the spotlight way down low. Hi out there. Welcome to Dame is the Four-Letter Word. I'm Lindsay. And I'm LP. And today we're going to be talking to you about circus performers. And we are actually live, live together. From Brooklyn. For the first time. <laughs> uh, who are you raising your glass to, Lauren? I'm raising my glass of dirt cheap Merlot to Millie Christine McCoy, the two-headed nightingale. Uh-huh. And I'm raising my glass of the same cheap Merlot to Lillian Leitzel, who is the top trapeze flyer of her day. Hmm. Ching, ching. Ching, ching. Ching, ching. <laughs> Okay, I'll begin. Lillian Leitzel was called by Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey a circus diva of the highest regard. She was four foot nine and weighed about ninety-five pounds and did a mean one-arm acrobatic plunge, which involved her separating her shoulder and throwing her whole body over her shoulder <laughs> over and over. What? Yeah, you can watch the videos on YouTube. And it looks pretty demented. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I recommend. Yeah, you were very understated about that. I'm like, well, that's cool. And you're like, yeah, she just dislocated her shoulder. <laughs> no big. <Yeah. laughs> and so, well, she became famous for these one-arm planches. And she'd often do a hundred turns of this in one performance while the audience would count each one out loud. Mm -hmm. And 98, 99, 100. And in one, um, she did two, her record was 249 of dislocating her shoulder and going over. Yeah. <laughs> She was born in Bohemian Germany in 1892 and mainly raised by her grandparents because her parents had separated when she was quite young and her mom and sisters were traveling circus performers around Europe. They were pretty famous. As a young girl in Germany, her family was molding her to be a concert pianist but and Lillian went to piano school and training for some time, though she didn't really want to do that and in her free time she created a trapeze for herself and taught herself acrobatic trapeze tricks that she'd seen her mom and sisters do. Aww. Her mom and sisters performed one aerial act that was famous throughout Europe, and they were called the Leamy Ladies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After some begging and auditioning, Lillian finally convinced her mother to allow her to be part of the act. In 1908, Lillian and the Leamy Ladies came to New York for the first time, and they returned in 1911 with Barnum and Bailey. This last time, though, Lillian decided she'd stay on in New York while the rest of the Leamy Ladies returned to Europe. She worked on the vaudeville circuit for some time, perfecting her Roman rings act and the one-arm plane act, where she would jump from the rings to the rope to dislocate her shoulder. In 1914, Lillian was offered a contract with Ringling Brothers, and she made her solo debut on April 17, 1915, at the Coliseum in Chicago. She remained a featured performer for three years and was in the headline spot for the entire year of 1970. But she was endearing not only because of her endurance, strength, and her willingness to contort her tiny body to ever more dangerous 
positions for the demented pleasures of the audience. <laughs> um, she was also aggressive and hot-tempered. She was known for her impulsivity, and she'd often fire, then rehire people backstage, <laughs> and was not unknown to slap the rustabouts if they didn't do the rigging for her rings just right, which I guess is fairly understandable. That's true. Yeah. If, it could really be bad if it wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which we'll get to later. Spoiler uh -oh. alert. Um, but... She'd very often fire and rehire um, within an hour or less her personal maid and friend, Mabel Cummings. That was mm. her name, quite a name. It's a very uh, early 20th century name. Mabel worked on her, on Lillian's private Pullman train car, because, yeah, Lillian... That's what they did in the circus, they had their own train car. No, Lillian, Lillian Leitzel, though, was mm. the first performer to command ah. her own Pullman train car. So, she was that good. She also had no compunctions about snapping at audience members while she was performing. So she was... She'd get very angry and just snap at them. They loved it. Um, <laughs> and in the Ringling Brothers' accounts of her, she was described as demanding yet demure, but also sweet and thoughtful, flamboyant, and yet sometimes shy and self-conscious. And the children knew her as Auntie Leitzel. And they would have huge performances for her, all these children. Though many men courted Miss Lillian, and though she was married to the Ringling a uh, ringling executive called Clyde Ingalls for four years. Her true love was definitely her fellow trapeze flyer, the Mexican legend named Alfredo Cadona. He was also quite a volatile and a really badass trapeze performer. They worked together, lived together, and in general carried on quite a tempestuous relationship that seemed to entertain those around as much as their trapezing did. They had great big screaming matches and... Um, <laughs> physical fist fights and they broke oh. up several times but in the end mm -hmm. they were apparently made for each other according to friends on the back lot and they were married on July 20th 1930 after Lillian kept him waiting for a solid three hours at the altar <laughs> what yeah just to let him know who was fucking in charge <laughs> oh my god yeah uh, so a year later while Lillian was performing in Copenhagen though I guess maybe she didn't yell at a roast about enough, but the brass swivel on the rope crystallized and broke while she was switching from the one-armed plange rope and to the ring. And um, she fell over 20 feet onto hard cement and sustained injuries to her spine and also had a pretty mean concussion. Oof. Despite the doctor's diagnosis that everything was a-okay and that she would recover perfectly, mm -hmm. Lillian died two days later on Sunday, February Aww. 15th. Yeah, Alfredo was crushed. He'd been in Berlin at the time, and though he'd come to Denmark briefly to check on her, he'd also followed Lillian's advice that he should just go back to his show because she was perfectly fine, and mm -hmm. sure enough, she just died two days later. Um, he never really got over Lillian's death. He tried to remarry um, this other aerialist named Vera Bruce, and things just didn't work out very well. He went to divorce her. And nothing really compared to Lillian, and in the divorce lawyer's office to Vera Bruce, he was sitting in there with Vera Bruce, and he asked the lawyer, could you please go away? I need to talk to Vera, and when the lawyer left, he shot Vera and himself. Oh my god! Yeah, so he was crushed after Lillian died, as was the whole circus world, and mm -hmm. you know. Lillian Litzel is called by many in the circus world the first circus luminary, and has been dubbed the queen of the air. To this day, no other circus performer has had top billing in the big top longer than Lillian Leitzel had. Holy shit. Yeah. There's actually not, I could only find like, you know, at the New York Library, like a whole bunch of encyclopedia 
articles about her. So mm -hmm. she had a ruby on her tummy and a diamond big as Texas on her toe. She laid her head down and she did the hoochie coochie real slow. When she did a special number on a zebra skin, I thought she'd stop the show. Is it a poem about a two-headed Yeah, it's the poem from their circus brochure. You want to hear it? Of course. It's called the, uh, well, I'm raising my glass to Millie and Christine McCoy. Mm-hmm. The Carolina Twins, the two-headed nightingale. And they were circus performers in, okay. the, in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, here's a poem about them from their autobiography that was written for the circus wow. called The Wonders of the World. The pyramids first, which in Egypt are reared, then Babylon's gardens and ramparts appeared. Next, Mausolus' tomb of affection and guilt, with the famed Diana in Ephesus, in Ephesus built. The Colossus of Rhodes made in brass for the sun, and Jupiter's statue by Phidias done. Some the Tower of Pharaoh's place next we are told, some the Palace of Cyrus cemented with gold. Last but not least is Millie Christine, the two-headed nightingale, alive to be seen, who will sing, who will dance, who will walk on two feet, and delight all beholders, whoever she may meet. <laughs> okay, 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 wait, wait, wait. In honor of the two-headed nightingale, I uh -huh. got your gift. Did you? Yeah. Oh! <laughs> I got it at the Coney Island Freak Show. Uh-huh. Oh my god, that's adorable! It's a two-headed stuff! I'll put a picture up of it, and it's really cute. It's very, <laughs> it's very stylish. I think it's, it's a... two-headed um... little girls in bear hats, it looks like. <laughs> They're the Futego twins. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're welcome. Hugs. Okay, so the okay. two-headed nightingale. Yes. Um, on July 11th, 1851, Monimia McCoy went into labor. She was a slave in Columbus County, North Carolina, and she'd already had seven other children in comparatively uneventful births. <laughs> this one was a little bit different. At first, the midwife delivering the child thought the girl just had a growth on her back, and then she noticed the arms and legs. Mm. They were conjoined twins. Millie weighed in at five pounds, Christine at 12. Millie was always the smaller and more sickly one of the two. They were joined at the pelvis, so they had four arms, two upper torsos, two heads, four legs, and, but in terms of um, waist and reproductive capabilities, they had one total. Uh -huh. So they were right at the pelvis. So that's also where their nervous systems were joined up. The example that I kept on uh, reading in this was that if you tapped Millie on the, Chris on the shoulder, Christine wouldn't feel it, but if you tickled either of their feet, both of them would feel it. Huh. Which is weird. And because of each of them wanting to move their own way when they were kids, they wound up twisting each of their spines forward. Reports from their later career say that they moved very gracefully and even danced. Um, if there was existing footage of this, I'm sure that would still blow all of our minds. Um, I'm, wait, I'll show you a picture in a sec. Okay. Even as a baby, everyone was excited to see the two of them, the famous Carolina twins. Their master got sick of it, wanted to make some dollars, and sold them. This is the point where I'm gonna apologize, because I'm entirely aware that Millie and Christine were conjoined twins, there were two people, but there are gonna be points here and there where I fuck up and say she instead of them. In my defense, in circus bios written up on the two of them, and sometimes in statements they made themselves, they're referred to in the singular. For publicity and marketing purposes, I'm sure that was part of it. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to think that spending one's life attached to someone else quite literally would cause a little bit of pronoun confusion now and again. Mm -hmm. The twins themselves were quoted as saying, although we speak of ourselves in the plural, 
we feel as but one person. So I apologize for any pronoun slip-ups, but let's say it was a gray area even to those involved. Anyway, since this was the antebellum self, the man master could just sell the kids so as to no longer have to deal with them and still be able to make money off of them. So he sold them in 1853 to a man named Brower, who didn't quite have enough money to pay the full price and had a Mr. Joseph Smith be his guarantor. So if Brower wasn't able to pay, Smith would gain possession of the twins. At this point, Christine was walking, but Millie still had some issues with it. Brower took them on a tour of the South, separating them from their family. When they reached New Orleans, Brower made a huge mistake. A Texan showed up and convinced Brower to let him buy the twins in return for $45,000 in deeds for valuable Texas land. So Brower bought this so much that he turned over the twins and expected to be given the deeds the next day. <laughs> Shocker! The next day he found that the Texan and the twins had left town. Wow. Amazing! Um, so he had to return to North Carolina and admit to Mr. Smith that Mr. Smith was now the owner of completely absent conjoined twins. And their mother was downright hysterical. Holy shit. Shockingly. Um, Mr. Smith purchased the rest of the family, yes, we are talking about that time, and then hired a Mr. T.A. Vestal, referred to in the twins' circus biography as one of the shrewdest detectives in the country, to find the twins. For 15 to 18 months, he kept on just missing them, everywhere from New Orleans to Philadelphia to Barnum's Museum in New York City. With the exception of the Barnum Museum, the Texan was smart enough to mostly exhibit them on the down low. And then later, two guys, Thompson and Millar, kind of surreptitiously bought them off a woman that he'd left them with, the Texan. And they loaded her on a boat and took her to England. Oh, them, them. See? Yeah. That's why I warned you. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> yeah, and at this point, Vestal was on the trail enough so that he found the taxi driver that had taken the two of them to the docks mm -hmm. to be put on a boat to England, because that's not a fair that you forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Mr. Smith and Monemia followed Vestal to England, where he narrowed down more just as to where the twins were on exhibit. I'd like to think that Mr. Smith brought Monemia along because of her great concern over the, her twins' fate, but let's also face the fact that in England, slavery was illegal. So the British authorities, if there was any dispute in guardianship for the twins, would have been less sympathetic to another guy claiming to own them mm -hmm. than they would be if said man had the twins' mother in tow. Yeah. I'm just saying he might not have just been that sweet. Although they did seem to like him a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so in a Liverpool theater, these two men, William Thompson and a uh, professor, Millar, were exhibiting the twins and the audience got even more of a show than they bargained for when the extremely large and pregnant Monimia McKay rushed the stage, grabbed the twins, and started hugging them and crying. What? Yeah, they were, I think the two of them were maybe they were just past four at the time, so at this point they'd spent more time apart from their mother than they'd spent with her, but I guess they still seemed to recognize her enough that people, mm -hmm. you know, mm. were okay with it. <laughs> so, but there were still some legal disputes involving this, and they wound up back in the custody of the Smiths and Menemia. Mm -hmm. um, after a few months continuing to tour in England, and to give Menemia time to have her baby, they sailed back to the States. Uh, when the twins came back, Mrs. Smith taught them how to read and write, which was illegal in those days, actually. So these skills did a lot of good for Millie and Christine because they were very intelligent. Yeah. It would have been ignored, I'm gonna point out, if they'd been born unconjoined twins and just 
put to work with their mom. Yeah. So it's kind of funny that because of how they were born, they kind of got spared just being separated from their mother mm -hmm. and sold to another plantation or just not given any kind of education whatsoever that would have happened if they'd just been twins. <laughs> hmm. And they had not a very mundane life, I assure you. So they also took up music. Christine was a soprano and Millie a contralto, which worked out great for duets. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's what got them their performing name of the two-headed nightingale. Uh -huh. One of the most expensive items in the Smith household was the piano that was specially made in order for them to be able to play. See, because of how they were joined, they couldn't sit side by side and play on a normal piano, mm -hmm. so the Smiths had to have two pianos joined together in like a V-shape. Oh, that's awesome. And it was like, cost $500, which was a lot of money in those Can days. Can you see this piano anywhere? No. I mean, I didn't find any pictures of it, mm. but they would like play these complicated pieces meant for four hands. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And this is, you know, this was like be before or during the war, so they weren't even 10 yet. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the, when the Civil War started, they had to lay low. Uh, Mr. Smith died in 1862, making the Smith's family have to sell a lot of their possessions, but the McCoys continued living with them. After the war was over and Millie Christine and her family were officially free, they stayed with the Smiths, but for the first time, the two of them were able to get their fair share of the profits from their touring, and they set new, some new ground rules. For example, no more poking and prodding, poking and prodding by doctors. They were well sick of that, because like whenever they got brought to another town when they were touring, the uh -huh. doctors would be like, we want to make sure they're not a fraud, and like, you know, hey, get naked, we're going to look at you. Which, you know. <laughs> I can see how you'd get sick of that. You're like, yes, this is where we're joined. And they were joined, like, yeah. at the pelvis, so that means I had to get... I, I'll show you in a second. Naked. Yeah, they, um, at 14, they were kind of of the mind that all the doctors would have seen, you know, they would have seen what they needed to know by now. The only other time they got, like, a naked examination was when Millie had, like, some kind of horrible abscess, and, like, the picture from that is, like, really sad, because you, like, one of them is just hanging their head, and the other one's looking at the camera, like, seriously? Fuck you. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna show you some pictures so you can get a. Well, you'll have to see on the site, but. Oh. They would make all their dresses themselves. And they made all their dresses themselves? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you that later, but yeah, this is the oh, picture that okay. I was talking about where they were. had to be examined. Nice. Where is it? She's so like, fuck you. Fuck you. you. <laughs> Huh. The two of them went to the Barnum Museum in New York City and started hanging out with giants and dwarves and bearded ladies. Um, in the 1870s, they went abroad to England and, among other things, they participated in the wedding of two of their friends, the giantess Anna Swan and her groom, Captain Marvin Van Buren Bates, also known as the Kentucky Giant. <laughs> Royalty of the day sounds a lot more interesting, because Queen Victoria supplied the bride with a dress and a ring and gave the groom a pocket watch that chimed on the hour. Like, she was... she loved it. <laughs> Later, Millie and Christine performed for the Queen on piano, dancing, and singing some of their famous duets, including Sisters We, Gay and Free, <laughs> Nightingale Scottish, I, I guess that's some kind of polka, um, Nightingale Mazurka, The Song of the Whippoorwill, Put Me in My Little Bed, and The Dear Dear Friends at Home. As for The Dear Dear Friends at Home, they were sending back so much money to their family that their father now owns the farm that he used to work at a slave on. Nice. They were a huge hit in England. The papers loved them. Oh, there was this one particularly facetious commentary on them. I couldn't find who actually wrote it. 
it said a western editor so I guess it was just some guy using pen name but the two of them loved this and so much they clipped it from one of their biographies later so he wrote this Girls in the city are divided into two classes, single-headed girls and double-headed ditto. <laughs> the single-headed ones are certainly the most numerous, but the double-headed ones appear to be the most attractive. <laughs> this is evident from the fact that while we can see a single-headed girl almost any time, we have to pay in order to be introduced to the maid with the duplex cranium. <laughs> Oh my. We say maid because the last double-headed girl we saw was not married. <laughs> there was one man who courted her successfully, as he thought, for a time. Before popping the question, he kissed one face first and could never get the consent of the other head. <laughs> she is now waiting until a two-headed man comes along and is gay with hope. <laughs> this duplex girl, however, must be in every way a desirable match. Though the assurance given that she eats with both heads might, might tell against her with parsimonious wooers, yet the fact that she buys dresses for one only must be an immense advantage. The same with her talking. The two-headed girl must be extremely circumspect, not only in her walk, but in her conversation. <laughs> As she can never have a secret, she can have no opportunity to go around telling it. Neither will anyone ever tell a secret to one head for fear that the other would split upon it. <laughs> On the dresses, side note, uh, you might realize that it wouldn't be simple as a suitor or themselves actually buying one. They actually made all their own dresses themselves, and uh, if you look, I mean, I'll see if I can find a gallery, but these were pretty ornate dresses. There was ribbons, there was lace, they, they were very well dressed. And they would have occasional help from either their maid, um, this Brit named Blanche Brooke, or later their sister Clara, because um, they couldn't reach very well to get to the hem. That would involve a lot of teamwork. So they toured throughout Europe from Paris to St. Petersburg and they learned Spanish, French, Italian, and German. So part of their act started being, say, Millie conversing with one person in German while Christine charmed a Spaniard in his native tongue. <laughs> and apparently their singing in French was particularly beautiful. It'd probably be pretty convenient to have someone always there to practice language with you. Oh, that's true. They could always, uh... Be like, yo, we're practicing French now. No, and, yeah. like, that's what also all the other, like, waggish newspaper accounts would they'd be like, well, neither of them can ever be lonely, for they always have an interesting and intelligent companion. <laughs> and I guess that was true. They returned to the States in 1878 with, among other people, some additions for their friend's P.T. Barnum, and he had this traveling band of midgets called Tom Thumb's Traveling Band, so they found a couple of Italians named Baron Littlefinger and Count Rosebud, <laughs> who were each around two feet tall. Count Rosebud would sing with the Baron on harmonica, and a third dwarf, Professor Albert H. Fernald, would be on the piano. An example right here of how intelligent and witty they were, there was another conjoined twin pair that entered the circuit, and these conjoined twins, their manager, Francis Sumner, took out an ad describing that his conjoined twins were a double-headed bohemian wonder, as he called them a perfect beauty, the Siamese twins, Changanung, and the two-headed nightingale are repulsive in comparison to this beautiful and extraordinary human phenomenon. And as you can imagine, the repulsive quite hurt their feelings. So they fired off a reply in the next paper, because uh -huh. there was a paper called The Clipper that um, circus people used. Yeah. And they wrote, hmm. To Francis M. Uffner, the midget man, Piccadilly Hall, London, England. 
I have just read of the wonderful prodigy advertised by you in the Clipper and cannot refrain from expressing to you my gratitude after seeing the good taste, something no one else has ever given you credit for, <laughs> displayed by you in speaking of repulsive people and that you do not mention yourself as one of them. <laughs> for we of education and refinement, Mr. Uffner, would seriously object to having one class with us who is so devoid of traits by which a gentleman is characterized as yourself. If people live to as great an age in these days as some of them did in olden times, of which I have read, no doubt you would grow to be a more monstrous monstrosity than you are. But, sir, you would never grow to be a gentleman. Same. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. They toured Cuba with a group of bohemian glassblowers, and their command of Spanish made them quite popular there. And they wound up at Bunnell's Museum in New York City with... I'm just reading you this next part because I love circus names. <laughs> so one of them was named Zip the What's It. <laughs> I don't know what he was. <laughs> um, a what's it? A what's? A what's it? A what's it? Um, some Zulu warriors who were nearly all American born. <laughs> a bearded lady named Annie Jones who was, quote, handsome and a good conversationalist. A gentleman who played the organ, a violin, and a cello all at the same time. Really? Ibonia the albino. Constantus, the tattooed Greek, and the Seven Wonders, who were just these seven sisters with really long hair. <laughs> what? Oh. Seriously? Mm -hmm. Isn't that, like, not special for that day and age? Didn't, like, all chicks have long hair? I don't know. Maybe it was really long. There wasn't a picture. Maybe it was, like, 40 feet long. Like, if they never cut it, it was, like, it was, like, Sikh style. They never cut it their whole life. Mm-hmm. All right. As long as you don't research it, <laughs> I say yes. Okay. Um, I can tell you anything you want. <laughs> so then the two of them joined Bachelors and Doris's Great Interocean Railroad Show in 1882. They'd said no at first, and then when, you know, Doris, also known as Hunky Dory, he, was my, like, he used to be a strong man, apparently. Man, my grandma's name is Doris. She really? started calling her Hunky Doris. <laughs> Hunky Dory uh -huh. kept on pursuing them. And so just to shut him up and try to get him to go away, they asked for $25,000 plus traveling expenses for their maid, Blanche, and a manservant, because they thought he was going to say no. Instead, mm -hmm. he just pulled out a contract to which he'd left everything blank except for the salary, wrote that in, and handed it to them to sign. And they did. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So they were on tour with that circus for two years. They had their own train car that Millie decorated. They did two shows a day with Sundays off. And they were singing and dancing as the main attraction, not the slideshow. And there was a rival company, Four Paw, that they wound up suing for libel. Uh, see, in the circus business, it's very competitive. And you were going to a lot of small towns that people in it weren't going to go to every single circus that came through town. Yeah. So if you, they would send people ahead, like other circuses, and see the other ones that were advertising, and then put up posters in front of those other circuses, like saying, don't waste your money on these people, they're horrible, they're horrible, like yeah. wait for the good circus, our circus, to come through town. Sounds like politics nowadays. Yeah, kind of. And so Forpa put up about Millie Christine, the double-headed darky they advertised so extensively is the same they have carted around the country for years gone by and exhibited for 10 cents when they want 50 cents to see the dark-skinned monstrosity, a disgusting sight for ladies and children to gaze upon. Ugh. They sued his ass for libel. <laughs> 
yeah, it was pretty mean. And it wound up being settled for an undisclosed sum. What an asshole. The two of them were then semi-retired. They spent some time in England where their maiden close friend died and they were pretty sad about that. So they moved in with their sister Clara and retired back to this huge house that Millie had decorated. They'd never had kids. Their doctor examined, the doctor who examined them once pointed out, physically there are no serious objections to marriage of her or them, but morally there is a most decided one. What? How? Fucking what? I, I guess they're not into the idea of polygamy. What can I say? No, what I mean, well, mar well marriage, but like, what would be wrong with them, them having a child? I, I guess Victorian sensibilities prevented <laughs> a doctor from seriously considering that it would be morally correct for a guy to be fucking two women at the Imagine, same time like, they'd, that were one woman. They'd be in labor and they'd be like each other's support system, you know? That's true. Push, no, you push, motherfucker. At the same time, I kind of feel confident that something might have... It was... I don't know. But they... Anyway. Wait, was there anything wrong with them? No, they had uterus. Yeah, so they could have. They menstruated. I think... I don't know. I feel like that would have been a grand thing to happen. Well, I mean, the Siamese twins, Chang and Eng, got mm. married. And they're they sisters. Do they have children? Yeah. Loads. Biologically. Yeah, loads. Well, I don't know about these twins. I don't know, man. I guess it's different when it's male twins. See, there's a double standard when it comes to Siamese twins, and I'm really questioning the use of that term. <laughs> as soon as it left my mouth. <laughs> anyway, okay. point being, um, so yes, they never had kids themselves, but as they were the eighth and ninth child of 12, they had a lot of nieces and nephews to dote on. Okay, sure enough. And they would encourage these kids to get educations, and they would care for them when they were ill. Mm -hmm. They were Aunt Millie Christine. That's cool, because if you were a child, like, getting a song sung to you as you're going to bed, you have, like, two ants there that could sing in, like, a round, you know? They'd be like, the sun will come out, the tomorrow sun will come out, you know? Exactly. The round. Yeah. I know, I'm sure. Have like, you ever there was a lot of stuff in their, in the biography or whatever of them where, like, all their, uh, like, nieces and nephews that were interviewed, like, loved them. They were like, they were so nice. Yeah. And they built a church in their community. They were very religious. Their favorite verse of the Bible being the song. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Um, one of their descendants, Lloyd Inman, said she was more than just a circus freak. She was a talented, generous black woman who was one of the greatest black women of her time. She said that when God made her, he gave her two heads and two brains because her responsibility was so great. Ah. Mm. But in 1909, and this is why I'm afraid I can't paint a better picture of their personalities than anything but show people, their beautiful, huge house that they built burned down. And they lost nearly everything. Letters, clothes, memorabilia, all of it. They lived another three years, but Millie was sick for most of it. She was never the same after the fire. She caught a chill, some people said, and the chill turned into tuberculosis. They tried different cures, even a sanatorium, but her condition worsened and worsened. On October 8th, 1912, Dr. Crowell was summoned to their house. He knew what for. He'd brought a whole lot of morphine. At dusk, Millie died, and Christine was the first to realize it. She told the doctor she passed away as in a dream, a beautiful dream. And Christine was given morphine, as people knew it would only be a matter of time and not too pleasant of an amount of time before mm -hmm. she would follow. And she was singing to herself. It wasn't a duet anymore, which is really sad. The doctor got permission from the governor, I'm not really sure how that happened, and mm -hmm. gave Christine an overdose of morphine that night to ease her out of the life. Huh. Um, 
So they buried the two of them in a joint coffin and had to guard against grave robbers for weeks the family graveyard. Wow. The headstone was two joined arches, their names and information written on each one with two lines of text joining them. A soul with two thoughts, two hearts that beat as one. Aww. They did have two hearts, but no, yeah. They, yeah. they actually didn't. That was the weird thing. Is like apparently Millie's pulse was slower. Anyway. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so that's Millie Christine, about to head Nightingale. I wish that I knew more about her, because, or them. Because <laughs> yeah. they sounded really, really mm -hmm. smart. Learning four languages and all those songs, dancing. There need to be more freak shows nowadays. Mm. All right. And on that note. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, only in the sense that, like, you, you when you read about the old freak shows, it's like, it they seems like cool. it's such a, like, nowadays people are like, almost it's like a taboo thing why would you put them on I mean, display okay, but you're I like jackass 3d yeah i mean a huge that movie is a freak show yeah right but you're <laughs> like, not even just wee man like the rest of them are freaks too like i feel like it almost creates a like what well, does create a more of a, a comfort about people who have disabilities and who are mm. born in different ways mm -hmm. Yeah. I now they're just they just seem to sit in houses like what mm -hmm. they're not visible in society anymore. Hey, Millie and Christine saw Europe. Exactly, they, they learned four languages. They performed like, for SARS and royalty and dukes yeah. and Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria yeah. gave them jeweled hair clips. Right. So thanks for listening to whatever after this podcast I leave in. I'm LP and I'm Lindsay and listen to us next time when we're going to be doing Outlaws um, prostitutes episode is in the future. But in case you were wondering. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever sung it around? Yeah. No.